Juarez, the Thomas Jefferson of Mexico. The country had been ruled for many years by military men who kept increasing and increasing their own personal fortunes. The people looked with hope to a strong non-military man, a full-blooded Indian, Benito Juarez. He was the only one who seemed to care about During his 18 years in power, he brought his country to financial ruin, not because he was crooked, he just didn't know how to run a country. Juarez, who has been called the Thomas Jefferson of Mexico because of his reforms, was also most instrumental in persecuting the church in Mexico. This seemed strange for a man who was taken off the streets as a young boy and given his education through the generosity of a priest. As soon as Juarez had attained even a small degree of power in the Mexican government, he passed a bill forbidding the church to buy property. He followed this with another law called the Reform Laws, which confiscated all church property, broke up monastic orders, dismantled convents, and prohibited seminaries. Religious were not allowed to wear clerical vestments on the streets. The reform laws of Benito Juarez and his focus, that of crushing the church in Mexico, have existed in one form or another until this day. Once begun, the persecution never ended. Sadly enough, this man would not have remained in power if it were not for the support he received from the United States. Mexico stopped growing. Mexican turned against Mexican. All buildings ceased until Porfirio Diaz began the construction of public buildings. The once beautiful religious art the Spaniards taught the Indians was replaced by the Bolshevist-inspired propagandist work of Diego Rivera. Sadly, when you are touring Mexico City under the direction of many city guides, one of the main highlights will be the huge mural by Diego Rivera defacing the outer wall of the National Palace. Diagonally across from this desecration of our Lord and defamation of his church looms the true spirit of Mexico, the cathedral reaching up toward heaven. The hammer and sickle that adorns this work of men, Diego Rivera, has crumbled and will long be forgotten. But the test of time, the evidence of a people's faith and faithfulness will never die. What will live until our Lord returns is what the Mexican government announced in 1935. He fears above all else the Catholic Church. One thing which above all else he fears, more than the foreign exploiters of oil and metals, more than the gringo government in Washington, is the same Catholic Church. Mexico, land anointed by the blood of martyrs. As we have seen down through the centuries, the church will always rise from the ashes of martyrs, and that is what this book is about. The revolution, purportedly for the freedom of the working class, was anything but that. It was just a changing of the guard. The few still had too much, and the many still had too little. The faces of the few had changed, but not that of the many. Only now... All were to be robbed of what treasure they had. The Catholic Church and their Salvador Jesus. The revolution, although started under the guise of equality for all, was to continue as a subtle and then outright life and death struggle with the church. But the revolution and its instigators did not reckon with the faithfulness and holy stubbornness of the many who refused to give homage to men. This ancient people, who survived pagan atrocities and Spanish betrayals, knew who their king was and no one was going to depose him. Priests were rounded up and expelled from many of the states of Mexico, but not even threats of imprisonment and death could deter these representatives of Christ. They returned, disguised as laity, and returned, and returned until they were, yes, imprisoned, and executed. Their only crime was they celebrated Holy Mass. You see, services were no longer allowed in church. 
the government even closed the churches down in an effort to keep people from silently praying within the holy walls. Unable to celebrate in a church, the faithful with their loyal priest went underground. They would pick a house that would not arouse suspicion, and they would come together. There were as many as 70 at a time. They crowded in as many as they could. You may have heard the expression, they were so close there was no room for the Holy Spirit. Well, the Lord had no problem here. He reigned. They may not have had spacious quarters for their Lord to be born again in the Holy Eucharist, but their grand hearts adored him, just as his mother, St. Joseph, the angels, and the shepherds did that time long ago when the world changed in Bethlehem. They went to confession and then mass. Several of their number would unobtrusively stand guard outside the home. They all knew the price, but they would not allow their Lord to die. If they were caught, the home where the mass and services were held will be confiscated with all its contents or burned. That was the least of the punishment they would suffer. Many men were separated from their families and never seen again. The women had their children taken from them, never to see them again. And then there were those who were made an example and shot after they were mutilated before their families and friends. And still, the people worshipped their Lord. There were communion stations set up around the cities and villages where the faithful would go and after hearing the word of God extolled, would take communion themselves. The Pope gave them dispensation to do so. As with Jesus, his founder, the Pope knew that the church without the Eucharist would not last. The Blessed Sacrament was hidden inside radios, medicine cabinets, behind books in a bookcase, and in some of the most unlikely places in order to avert the Lord falling into the wrong hands. They knew who their Lord was. They did not take him for granted. A priest in the United States, grieving over the lack of respect and reverence shown to our Lord and Savior in the Blessed Sacrament, said he wished that all the churches would be closed for 90 days. Then he said, we'd see how we all felt about our Lord. Do we take him for granted? Do we assume we will always have a mass and a priest to administer the sacraments? So did the Mexican people. We were once told that we were too fat in the United States, that we would only have vocations after we were made lean like Poland, Ireland, and Mexico. We were told we would become a catacomb church in the United States. We felt as if someone had thrust a sword in our hearts. But did we believe it? Can it happen here? Can we be the next Mexico? We would like to share the story of St. Tarsicius here, because there have been many like him in Mexico. St. Tarsicius was an acolyte in the early church who brought the Eucharist to Christians in prison. The guards never suspected the amiable young boy of his appointed task as he pretended to bring them news from the outside or some other subterfuge. One day, as he was hurrying to the prison, carrying a treasure, the Eucharist in a pyx, he was accosted by some rowdies. They could see that he was holding something precious in his hands. They insisted he turn it over to them. He refused. When they realized they could not wrench the price from him, they beat him to death. Try as they may, they still could not pry his hands open. Only the priest, upon arriving on the scene, was able to retrieve our Lord. When the priest touched St. Tarsicia's hands, they opened freely. He is celebrated as one of our early Christian martyrs who died for the faith. You will know them by their fruits. Mexico in the 20th century from 1927-1929 had its jails crowded with Catholics whose only crime was they refused to deny Christ in his church. One of the prisoners had a beautiful son who was six years old. As with St. Tarsicius, he was so lovable, even the jailers loved him. Little did they suspect his true mission as he danced and sang. He was entertaining not only his father and the other prisoners, 
but he was truly delighting the jailers. What they did not know was that on certain visits, he left the captives the only lasting joy, our Lord in the Eucharist. How precious and important was the Lord that a father would allow his son to face torture and execution if he was caught. Author's Note Last year, a lawyer came to visit one of the pro-life prisoners. His client was a Catholic who had been arrested for demonstrating outside of an abortion clinic. The lawyer was bringing consecrated hosts to the prisoners when he was stopped, searched, and ordered to hand them over. When he refused, he was arrested for smuggling in contraband. He was brought before a judge who sentenced him to a suspended sentence and warned if he were arrested on any future charge, he would have to serve time for this crime. No, this is not Mexico, but the United States. Could it happen here? It did. Father Gonzalo de Tapia, a Mexican martyr who was killed by pagan Indians in 1594, came from Pascuaro. The martyrdom which faced the people of Mexico and this village did not begin in the 1900s, but in 1520, when Dominican friars, Franciscans, Augustinian monks, and later, and later Jesuits set out without the protection of soldiers to evangelize to the Red Indians. Almost in, in retribution for having taken away their bloody sacrifices to their gods and their exhilaration at this spectacle, tribes demanded blood for blood. When they captured this man of God, they exchanged their blood for the blood of the tens of thousands of children they were robbed of sacrificing each year. The blood of the martyrs flowed over the darkness of what had been pagan Mexico, and the land sprouted a people nourished by the body and blood of their Savior, the unbloody sacrifice they will never deny. The cup of agony, suffering, sacrifice, and death the martyrs drank from has never been blotted out from the memory of the Mexican faithful. Is this what the faithful of Pascuaro saw, and as they marched unafraid, braver than the bravest soldier to Mass on Sunday? One Sunday, two priests arrived in Pascuaro. They thought, disguised in lay clothing, they would be able to move about undetected. But as they passed by, Indians donned their hats respectfully and bowed before them. They witnessed to churches filled with the faithful from early morning to late night. What did this priest find here? Holy clusters. They saw holy clusters of holy people on holy ground, sanctified by those martyrs who went before them and who would be of their number. And they knew it. Is this why the forces of hell has never been able to prevail against the Catholic Church? The more the faithful defied the president of Mexico, General Plutarco Elias Calles, the angrier he became and the more vindictive. He will break their spirit once and for all, get rid of their priest. He ordered all the priests to leave their parishes and report to Mexico City. He has been reported that not one priest obeyed this order. They all remembered their obedience was first and foremost to their Lord and the Church. The separation of church and state had been instituted by the early church because of the insistence of the emperors to control the people by controlling the church. Many lived and died that the church will never be under the tyranny and authority of the state. To disobey meant that all the priests became fugitives under the law. The search began, find the priest at all cost. Bribe, and if that fails, threaten and torture, and then kill. But the priest must be found and done away with. The, the sad truth about this, Calles, was that everyone, including the United States, had had high hopes for Mexico under the tutelage of this man. Go after the children. Can't get the older generation to submit? Go after the children. But what Hitler was successful in doing, the government could not do in Mexico. There are some interesting and uplifting stories, sometimes comical, as the Mexican can always laugh and joke even when he is crying inside. But if we pause to reflect, 
they become also tragically alarming, a foretaste or prophecy of what may be to come or what has already begun in our country. In one school, a teacher ordered the children to chant, Uno, dos, uno, dos, no hay Dios. Uno, dos, uno, dos, no hay Dios. One, two, one, two, there is no God. One, two, one, two, there is no God. Instead, the children chanted, Ay Dios, ay Dios, there is God, there is God. The teacher finally had to give in. The children who were supposed to be brainwashed would not succumb. Instead, it was the teacher who capitulated, exhausted. One for our team. But not for long. Satan never gives up. Although we foolishly take this church of ours for granted and become apathetic, Satan never sleeps. This will not be the only instance when the people stood up for their faith and their children. There was reported in an American newspaper that a young man was hanged by villagers because he had rounded up their children for the express purpose of teaching them there was no God. A March of Time reel covered it in the movie theaters in the United States. The people of Mexico were giving notice. We will lose our lives rather than lose our souls. And if need be, take the lives of those who will try to take our souls from us. All right. The government could not break their will and their belief in the one true God. Teach the children about the gods who appeal to the lower senses. Teach them sex education. In another state of Mexico, one of the children came home and told her mother that the teacher had the children do things under the pretext of sex education, which we cannot print in this book. The mother, crazed by the thought of the debased acts her children was forced to do, took a gun, went to school, and shot the teacher. She will no longer steer children to sin. When she stood before our dear Lord, I wonder what the teacher said to him as he gazed into her eyes. Did his words suddenly come to life? Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him to have a great millstone hung around his neck and to be drowned in the depths of the sea. Matthew 18, 6 Children were led to stockyards under the pretense of science. They were graphically explained human reproduction as they were instructed to watch animals mating. The teachers, as part of their school curriculum, also brought children to the maternity wards where they could view a woman giving birth. As if this was not enough, in the classroom, teachers instructed children to remove all their clothes, and then she explained how two people went about the act of intercourse. To give the instructors the benefit of the doubt, they may have been deluded into believing they were teaching the children about sex rather than have them learn erroneously from one another in the streets. This is how they may have begun, but as more and more permissive direction came down authoritatively from the government, they soon found themselves involved in something hideously resembling perversion. There were school dances held where both girls and boys were told to disrobe and perform acts. Our resource rights are too profane to include here. And this all in the name of enlightenment and education. Did the parents of hundreds of years of Our Lady of Guadalupe and Christ the King just sit back and do nothing? In one village, a young girl refused to return to school the next day. When her mother questioned her, she began to cry. She told her that the teacher had forced all the children, boys and girls, to remove all their clothes in class in front of one another. When the mother told her husband, who was the mayor of the town, he loaded a gun and rushed to the school. He called the teacher to come out of the classroom. First, he told her, his daughter only undresses in front of her mother. What you have done, he said, was to bring disgrace on her and her family. He went on that since this is the new education of the government and she sincerely believed she was doing what was right, 
Then she should be willing to participate in the same exercise she had instructed the children to do. He pointed the gun at her and ordered her to remove her clothes. He told her he would join her and remove his clothes. This proved to be too much for the teacher. She screamed and then fainted. The whole incident was so traumatic, she snapped and suffered a nervous breakdown. Imagine this had so shocked her that she, a grown woman, collapsed. What had the new modern form of education, as he was called, and the experiences she had imposed on those innocent children done to them? The Mexican people were up in arms. A vote was called by the people. The results were 80,000 against any form of sex education and 75 for. These percentages never changed. The people sent out protests to over 3,000 schools and institutions demanding these practices be terminated. When that failed, the people took to the streets with peaceful demonstrations. But when the police used force to break up their gatherings, they fought back. They turned to the legal system to save their children. But when all failed, half-crazed with helplessness, seeing their children corrupted, they often took matters into their own hands. And this is how vigilantes are dangerously begun. When a government ceases to represent the people, they will represent themselves and solve problems on their own. And most often, chaos results. How to get the children? The government went after the Catholic schools. They knew that people would accept this new teaching from the church. The church refused, as did the Catholic schools. When they were given the ultimatum, either teach this new form of socialism, members of the government have brought these teachings back from the Soviet Union, or close down, they closed down. They taught in the homes, setting up home schools. Former teachers of Catholic schools held classes in the parents' homes in the back of stores, and when they burned down homes and stores or confiscated them from their owners, they taught in the town squares. The government will use many as examples of what happens to those who will not bend. They lined up teachers and students and threatened them, deny Jesus Christ, say there is no God. When they will not deny Christ, they cut out their tongues. There were several young men rounded up one day. They were lined up against the school wall to be shot. When one of the youngest, a teenager, 15 years old, began to cry, one of the others said, Die as the martyrs before you bravely. To keep him quiet, the soldiers cut off his tongue as he was proclaiming, Long live Christ the King. Viva Cristo Rey! What praise his voice could no longer exclaim he offered with his heart. They could not look into his eyes, gleaming with love and forgiveness. These young martyrs, more boys than men, went to their deaths, their arms outstretched in imitation of their Savior on the cross, proclaiming, Viva Cristo Rey! They had commended their spirit to their Father in heaven, as the martyrs before them, their rosaries clutched in one hand and a crucifix in the other, their eyes heavenward, they went home. Go after the bishops, priests, religious, and the church. In the United States, in the year 1929, all the godliness and promiscuity of the 20s will come crashing down on that crazed generation. As the stock market plummeted downward, those who had traded the one true God for the pagan gods of sex, power, and money threw themselves out 30-story windows. They had betrayed their Lord for 30 pieces of silver, and now they were betrayed. The whole world was going mad. Two years earlier, in February 1927, the president of Mexico, Plutarco Elias Calles, issued an order for all priests throughout Mexico to leave their parishes and report to Mexico City. As this would place them under the supervision of the state, robbing them of their allegiance to Rome and the Pope, they refused. They stood on their constitutional rights, which ensured clear separation of church and state. All the priests, 
bishops and religious were in communion, rejecting the state's authority over the church. They knew the outcome. They chose to become fugitives rather than deny the faith. As the early church martyrs before them, they would not swear allegiance to Caesar, the head of the state, for to do so will be to declare him God. They became hunted, and when caught, arrested, mercilessly tortured, and very often executed. And while this was going on, the United States was giving credit to Mexico in the sums of tens of millions. Closed down the church completely. The Constitution instituted in 1917 declared the church illegal. They made priests and religious bloody examples of what happens to those who defy the government. Instead of the faithful being intimidated, their fervor for their church grew stronger. The people would not give up. The church was no longer allowed to have private schools. The government closed them down. There would be no place where children could go to hear God's word taught. The government then reopened the schools with a total philosophy of atheism. If the future citizens were to be educated at all, it would be with this Marxist ideology that had been brought back from the Soviet Union. That's what the government thought. The instructors who had taught in the Catholic schools refused to teach the new curriculum. They would not lead innocent children against the church and God. They went underground. The church became a catacomb church and the Catholic schools along with her. The church was no longer allowed to own property. Therefore, the government plundered all the magnificent tributes of praise and homage to their God. The faithful had built and paid for. With one fell swoop, the new despots who had promised the people of Mexico a new, fairer world tried to rob them of a dream they had cherished for close to 400 years. The government took the beautiful churches, schools, convents, and etc., and used them as office buildings, museums, and often stables. But this was to the brick and mortar that was the church. The faithful met in homes, in back of stores, in squares. The church will not lie down and die. The church was alive. They closed down the seminaries. No seminaries, no seminarians, no priest, no mass, no church. That will be the end of vocations to the priesthood in Mexico. As if this was not enough, the government used the Constitution to deport all foreign missionaries and forbid any from entering Mexico. The idea was to rob the people of all Catholic instruction. Without the priest to pass on the faith, it will surely die. If only godliness was taught without any teaching of Christ and his church, these modern-day pilots will kill Christ once and for all. So they thought. Each state was given the power to determine how many priests will be permitted to serve the needs of the citizens of their locale. The Constitution made the priesthood a profession not unlike those requiring licenses from the government to practice, such as doctors, lawyers, engineers, and etc. By this act, the government was declaring the church a part of the state. This will mean that the state will determine how, when, and what the church will teach. In other words, the Roman Catholic Church in Mexico under obedience to the Vatican and the Holy See, will no longer exist. It would become the Mexican state church. This was not an original idea. When the mad revolutionaries of France went on their blood-seeking rampage, they vented their hostile anger on innocent priests and nuns because the crown of France had been Catholic. As we know, hate knows no boundaries, neither does revenge. Blood once poured out is like an elixir to the mad. Their thirst can never be satisfied. Those clergy whom they did not kill by the guillotine, the French revolutionists demanded they take an oath swearing sole allegiance to the government. Unlike the priests and bishops of Mexico, some did take an oath. 
Russia was going to give the richest of the few to the many, but the pattern is always the same. One totalitarian for another. Russia followed France by setting up its own living church. This new government that was to stand for liberty and equality for all, like Mexico and its other counterpart, France, destroyed any semblance of the church and their country before the revolution. All this is not new. Satan has always known that the church, as the instrument of God, will always have the love and faithfulness of the people. Oh, they may stray temporarily, but they will always come back home for, to Mother Church. Emperor Constantine knew it. Rulers since have known and tried. Hitler started his own religion, calling the German people to pride in being an Aryan race. Whereas they have formerly hailed Jesus and Mary, they were now made to hail the new God, Hitler. The hate of church became so intense that the day before the Nazis ca capitulated to the Americans, SS men rounded up a local priest and six men, lined them up before a firing squad and killed them. We heard about them from the local priest when we filmed a documentary in Altoting, a Marian shrine where Catholics have venerated the Mother of God and worshipped Jesus in 700 AD. How do these monsters, the Stalins, the Hitlers, the Mussolinis, and the Cayes of the world take over a majority of the faithful and rob them of Jesus? The men of Mexico went to the hills, and their wives and sisters stayed behind to defend their homes and children from the enemy, their own countrymen. Many women saw their children sacrificed because they will not tell the whereabouts of a priest or religious who San Judas had reported to the government. These people of Mexico, whom the world does not know, believed that the Catholic faith was more precious than life on earth. Many young men and women gave their lives crying out, Viva Cristo Rey! But this was not only a fight for freedom of religion. When one freedom is taken away, you can be assured others will follow. They lost freedom of the press, the right to assemble in public, the right to associate with whom they wished. A government which underwent a revolution for supposed equality for all was now denying freedom to all. All that is, but the favored few who were in charge of the government. It is said that Abraham, Moses, and the other prophets never saw the dream. Those who died never saw their country free, but did they die in vain? The martyrs never saw the promised land in this world, but they all did in the next. The government hunted down priests, accusing them of leading the rebellion. That was totally untrue. Their crime was that they stuck to their God-appointed vocations of tending the souls of the faithful. With the exception of three, no priest took up arms or incited the people to revolt. Nevertheless, it was reported to an American newsman that over a hundred priests had been executed for treason against the state. One incident we would like to share with you is typical of what went on. When the order had been given for all priests to leave their parishes, Father Elias Nieves chose to stay behind with his people. Warned that soldiers were looking for him, he fled to another village. It would appear he was safe. Then someone sold his soul for a promise that would probably never be kept. When the soldiers arrived, a trader told them the priest's whereabouts. They looked all over the village where the priest was hiding. Everyone was silent, but when they frightened a poor old lady with descriptions of the horrible tortures she would undergo, she pointed out the house. They dragged out Father Nieves. Two men who were trying to defend him were taken and placed in prison as well. Some people offered money for the release of the three captives. The sum was high, and this usually worked. Not this time. The captain wanted blood, not money, but not of the two men. He offered them their freedom. It was the priest he wanted. They insisted they would go with their priest to their death. The captain shrugged his shoulders. Oh, well, what's two more lives, he thought. The sun rose, 
the villagers were held at gunpoint as their priest and two villagers were led out to be executed. The two men knelt down before Father Nieves, confessed their sins. After he gave them absolution, they stepped forward. Together they said, We are ready. Then, with the signal grace of the martyrs before them, they stood there without blindfolds, never flinching, as the explosion of bullets struck them down one by one. Men and women cried, their hands clamping their mouths to stifle their screams. It was time for the priest. He walked toward the bullet-riddled corpses of the two brave men who had preceded him. He told the firing squad he was ready, but then asked for a moment to pray. Then he turned to the soldiers, Kneel down so that I may bless you. They obeyed and knelt. Was this an instinctive response dating back to the time they were Catholics and not soldiers? Were they remembering their childhood and the love and respect they have for their priest? Did they remember the many times the priest had come to their home to be with members of their families as they lay dying? In imitation of the Savior who asked the Father to forgive those who were crucifying him, Father Nieves laid his hands on their heads and pardoned the soldiers for what they were about to do. He blessed them all with the sign of the cross, the one he chose to die for. As he turned to bless the captain, his forgiveness was met with a bullet. The captain raised his gun and shot the priest without a moment's hesitation. To make sure his dirty work was done, the captain coldly aimed his revolver at Father Nieves' head and blew his brains out. I wonder if someday he will be pleading for Father Nieves' intercession as he faces his death and final judgment. All the villagers were no longer frightened of the soldiers. The next day, they processed with the three bodies and laid them to rest. It was a day of rejoicing, of resurrection. It was a day of hope. It was plain. These three had conquered death. By their martyrdom, they were with the Father in the kingdom. For every villager who betrayed his church and priest, whether it was because of fear or greed, there was hundreds who chose death rather than betrayal. One of the greatest hurts and unbearable pains suffered by the people was they could no longer have mass said for them. But this was not for all the people. Those who could bribe the soldiers and police were able to hide a priest and celebrate Mass in their home. Poor women, shawls hugging their heads were followed as they went to Mass. They were killed, along with the other worshippers and the priest, while the privileged few had the benefits of the sacraments. If those few were aware of the plight of their less fortunate brothers and sisters, I wonder what all the earthly consolations will mean when they beg of their Lazarus in heaven some water for their fevered and parched lips. The murdering of priests knew no boundaries. There was no longer sanctuary in the church, or in the altar for that matter. One day, Father Francisco Vera was celebrating Mass in Jalisco. The soldiers stormed into the church. The captain took a picture of the priest in his vestments before and after he shot him. He proudly sent it to President Calles, who was so pleased. He sent it to the papers for all to see and be forewarned. There are hundreds of stories like this and worse. They did not stop a priest celebrating Mass. An American correspondent was shocked as local authorities bragged that 40 old men and women caught attending Mass were brought to the cemetery and shot. Their crime against the state was worshiping God. They were not satisfied with robbing property from Mother Church. They then began to confiscate homes and lands belonging to Catholics. For rewards, for envy, for spite, Judases began reporting that people were praying in their homes. This warranted the eviction of the rightful owners of the haciendas and the turning over of the property to an official of the government or another dishonest despot. Then it became a crime to have anything of a religious nature in your home. 
Some of the haciendas had objects desart, which had a religious motif, like, for example, a Michelangelo or a Da Vinci. The art and the home were seized, and if they were lucky, the owners were allowed to escape with their lives and the clothes on their backs. Sometimes that was not the case. As with the Irish martyrs, the Mexican martyrs held their starving children in their arms as they stood helplessly by and saw food being carted out of their villages. A correspondent from the United States, Mr. Beals, seeing the atrocities and the suffering of the people, cried out that he did not understand how Christ the King, the Prince of Peace, was served by the slaughter of innocent men, women, and children. Yet he did concede that it was not the Catholics who were responsible, but the military and unprincipled bandits. What did Mr. Beals want? Did he know their Lord Jesus? Did he not understand they could not deny this Lord and his church, for that would be true slavery? They would rather live forever in his arms than a poor lifetime in men's. But how do you explain the love one has for Jesus and his church? You have to live it, to know it. As you walk with him and talk with him, you find yourself filled with an ecstasy so sublime, life is pale by comparison. A young father, Anacleto Gonzalez Flores, was tortured because he will not reveal the whereabouts of the Archbishop of Guadalajara. I die, but God does not die. He cried out these words as they lined him and the men with him who had refused to save their lives by exposing the Archbishop. Anacleto's young widow brought their young son to the spot where his father lay. She took his picture standing beside his father's lifeless body. She wanted to ensure he would never forget his father and the price he paid for the right to be Catholic. As we get to know Guadalajarans and see them set their jaws stubbornly when someone tells them there is no God, when they turn off some intellectual who tells them they have been taught a lot of superstition that the church has drummed up to control them, then we know that they too have not forgotten. Is this what makes up the God's people who will not allow him to die or fade away as a memory? What do you think? So you see, Mr. Beals, wherever you are, and the others who think like you, we believe the message is that the ecstasy is worth the agony. Miguel Pro, a clown who became a priest, who became a martyr, who became a saint. On September 25, 1988, a fairly large group of Mexicans, led by a priest, walked to the National Lottery Building, located on a busy thoroughfare in Mexico City, and celebrated Mass there. The crowd was large enough to attract the attention of the police, and we believe they did notice. But the faithful were not stopped or hindered in any way. We were very surprised to hear of this until we were told of a little bronze plaque on the wall of that building. It reads very simply, This is the spot where Padre Miguel Pro was executed on November 23, 1927. The day Mass was celebrated was the day Miguel Pro was beatified by Pope John Paul II at St. Peter's Basilica in Rome. In 1927, the execution of Miguel Pro and the publicizing of that execution was a huge mistake on the part of the Mexican government, which they have never been able to live down or sweep under the carpet. It highlighted the persecution of the church by the government. Padre Miguel Pro just refused to go away, and based on his recent beatification, he never will. Who is Padre Miguel Pro? Miguel Agustin Pro, God's Clown, was born on January 13, 1891. Miguel was one of the upper class, but he never thought of himself that way. His greatest love as a child was to be with the workers. To Miguel, this was the best way to spend his life. He delighted in bringing some sunshine into their overworked hearts. One talent Miguel acquired early in life which will be extremely important to him later on, was as a caricaturist. He was able to capture in exaggerated form the peculiarities in people's faces. He will embellish noses 
thick bushy eyebrows, long chins, funny eyes, buck teeth. This ability to disguise himself was to prove crucial in later years. From 1872 to 1913, tensions between the church and the state had cooled somewhat. The fact that Miguel Pro attended a Jesuit seminary in Mexico is proof of this. But the fire between church and state was never put out. In the years to come, it would rekindle into a roaring blaze. As he was developing, the attitude of many people was the country had been under some form of revolution since before their birth. They had survived thus far. They would continue to survive. But we always say how many dead bodies would be left to lay in the wake of this new revolution. The common men will see the balance of power affect them in a devastating way. Miguel's father had to flee from his home, as did his mother and his younger brothers and sisters. Financially, they had lost everything. The revolution of 1910 would cause suffering that equaled or surpassed the Holocaust of the past. Miguel put all his trust in the Lord. He had made a commitment to become a priest, and he was going to live by it. While he was able to keep in focus with his mind, his body began to give way. He contracted an agonizing illness which will be with him the rest of his life. But being who he was, he never let on that he was ill. He was the gesture of the seminary. Very few knew what lay behind his cheerful exterior. Although on the surface, he was a clown. He was very firm on his observance of the rule and his studies. The persecution intensified. Conditions in the country were approaching disaster proportions. Law was virtually non-existent. The military ruled by intimidating landowners, confiscating their possessions, and then shooting them. Miguel spent much of his spare time at the outer edges of the seminary, listening to stories from passerby of how bad things were going in the rest of the country. In addition, it became very obvious that a new wave of persecution was being aimed at the church. Pope Pius XI termed this period in Mexico as exceeding the most bloody persecutions of the Roman emperors. War stories of religious being beaten and strung up to die found their way back to the seminary. The possibility of becoming a martyr for the faith became very real to Miguel for the first time. A fellow student testified that Miguel expressed that ardent wish which he felt to suffer persecution for justice sake. A heavy blanket of tension covered the seminary towards the end of the school year. The superiors were aware of the atrocities that were going on all around them, but were not saying anything to the students in order not to frighten them. The students, for their part, were aware of the problems, but said nothing to their superiors in order not to alarm them. A band of guerrillas attacked the neighboring town. They did not stop at pillaging and destroying, as they barraged the innocents of the village with violence upon violence. The general in charge of the guerrillas killed the head of the village. Finally, what the seminary feared most came about. One night, this pistol-shooting, drunken, vicious men found their way into the seminary. They broke down doors, chopped up furniture, shut up the building, and generally terrorized the superiors. No one was beaten or hung or shot, but the seminarians and their superiors knew their days were numbered. They didn't have to wait long. Shortly after, wholesale persecution of all religious orders went into full force once again. The superiors determined it was best they all abandon the seminary and flee for their lives. All were given civilian clothing to wear. On the Feast of the Assumption, they left the seminary. The priests and novices went by twos, sporadically in different directions, to avoid attracting attention. Miguel went to the nearest town, Zamora. The plan was for all of them to mix with the local population and stay undercover until they could regroup as a community. For some reason, everyone in Zamora knew that Miguel and his companion were priests or about to become priests. This didn't present a problem until a few days later when the churches were closed and everyone who had anything to do with the church 
from a sacristan to a bishop, had to appear before the head of the town. Miguel and his friend didn't go. All who did were thrown into jail, manhandled, and tortured. But for Miguel, a very important chapter of his life began. He knew that he had to fool the soldiers and police. In order to do this, he began to practice his art of elaborate disguise. This was to be his salvation during his active ministry. No one could identify him. One evening, he disguised himself as a peon dressed in cotton pants wrapped in a serape with a large sombrero on his head. He walked casually through the town past all the armed revolutionaries who were on the lookout for religious. According to the plan set by his superiors, he made his way to Guadalajara to meet up with the rest of the community. There he found his mother and his brothers and sisters living in the poorest of conditions. But they were alive. That was all that mattered. Word came to him that his father was definitely alive and safe, though they didn't know where. Risk-taking became a way of life for religious in Mexico. At one point, the bishop met with a group of 500 faithful on private property and celebrated Mass. During the service, the house was surrounded by armed revolutionaries and all were placed under arrest. However, their plans were foiled by a huge group of people who surrounded them and demanded they free the bishop. The revolutionaries backed down in the face of such a mob. It was becoming more and more difficult to function under the suppressed circumstances. Finally, word came by code for Miguel and the other seminarians to leave Guadalajara for Los Gatos in California. There, they were to continue their studies. It was a very heartbreaking experience for Miguel at the Guadalajara Railroad Station. His mother and brothers and sisters saw him off. He knew he was leaving them in an impossible situation, but he had to continue in his commitment to the Lord. He knew as he bid his mother goodbye that he would never see her again on this earth. He never did. Miguel in Exile Miguel and 16 other companions from the Jesuit seminary in El Llano traveled together through Mexico, which was now enemy territory for them, across the border at Nogales, Mexico, and up through California to Los Gatos, some 50 miles south of San Francisco. Although he had never visited this country before, he knew that at one time it had belonged to his beloved Mexico, and now he was a foreigner here. But he was an outcast in his own country, an outlaw, a deserter from the cause, whatever that cause might be at any given time. Still, it was his country. His mother and father, his sisters and brothers were still there. The people the Lord had commissioned him to minister to were there. The Jesuits and Los Gatos were extremely hospitable. Though they were filled to capacity, they found room for their 16 Mexican brothers. Language, however, was a major problem. The Americans didn't speak Spanish. The Mexicans couldn't speak English. They had complete access to the library, although there was only one book in Spanish, which they could use. They felt out of place. It was extremely difficult for them to study. In addition, bad news from home was followed by worse news, always leveled at the church. Carranza had written the devastating constitution of Querétaro in 1917. In it, no foreigner was allowed to possess anything in Mexico. Religious vows were forbidden. All ecclesiastical property was to belong to the state. Priests could not practice their ministry. They had absolutely no rights at all. Hundreds of priests, a number of bishops, and nuns were expelled from the country. 2,000 Catholic schools were closed. The situation in Los Gatos was not working now for the Mexican students. They decided to send the Mexican students to Spain to finish their studies. After all, Spain was the home of the Jesuits. And so the 16 packed up again, made the long trip to New York by way of El Paso and Miami, and boarded a ship for Spain. They arrived in Granada in July of that year. Miguel spent five years in Granada, Spain. While he was very sad inside, 
to be so far from his home and family, and while his internal illness gave him fits of agonizing pain, he maintained a great cheery exterior. He became the ringleader of most of the students of his group, but definitely all the Mexicans. Miguel was sent to Nicaragua to teach at a Jesuit boys' school. He threw himself into the work teaching the younger students drawing. He thought that the next stop would be Mexico. But after two years, he was sent back across the ocean again to attend theology school in Barcelona. It was 1921. Miguel was 30 years old. He studied very seriously in Barcelona until 1924. Then he was sent to Enghien, Belgium. He didn't speak French at all, and the French spoke Latin differently from the Spanish. In spite of the language barrier, he charmed all the Europeans at that college. He became the clown again, the joker of Jesus. Everybody loved him. But this was also a time of intense reflection for Miguel. He focused on what his apostolate would be. He would work with the people, the commoners. He didn't know if he would ever be allowed to return to his beloved Mexico. Things just kept getting worse. But that could not stop him from working for the Lord. To this end, he studied the encyclicals of Pope Leo XIII on the working men. He delved into anything of a sociological nature that might help him in his quest to do the Lord's work. It was in Enghien that he was ordained on August 31, 1925. At long last, after 14 years of preparation, he was given the gift he hungered for, bringing Jesus to the people through the ministry of the priesthood. Padre Miguel returns to Mexico at long last. He was given orders to return to Mexico. He couldn't believe that was possible, considering conditions there. With Caius's takeover as president, the reign of terror against the church became the worst yet. All the persecution that had preceded him was like child's play compared to what Caius was determined to do to the church. But Miguel was relieved that he was finally settled. His ministry was in Mexico, and that's where he was going, no matter what. On the way home, he went to Lourdes. His words, I have been therefore to Lourdes, and if I did not visit Calvary, nor see the river banks, nor the outward shape of the basilica, nor what it contains, all the same, I went to Lourdes. That is, going there for me was meeting my mother in heaven. It was to talk, to pray to her. And I met her. I talked and prayed to her. At 8.30 next morning, I was back in Paris and at 9 said Mass in the house. I could not sleep even for an hour. Tomorrow morning at 8.30 I leave and arrive at St. Nasser at 5.30 in the afternoon. The liner leaves at midnight. My crossing will not be as hard as I thought since our lady told me so. I, Padre, it was very painful to my wretched natural self to return to Mexico without health, without finishing my studies, to find my poor country ruined by its government, not to find there any mother, that saint to whom I owe my life and for whose death I still weep. But my journey to Lourdes has given me courage, and this journey I owe to the charity and delicacy of you and your family. Miguel sailed for Mexico on the Feast of John the Baptist, June 24, 1926. What happened there with Mary that day that he knelt before her at the grotto? We know that Miguel Pro is a saint. Did she say things that he had to hear in order to give him the strength he will need for the days ahead? Was it the same as when she appeared to James the Apostle in Zaragoza, Spain, and told him to go back to Jerusalem to be martyred? Did Mary tell Miguel Pro to go back to Mexico to be martyred? We do know that she was his last contact in Europe, and he returned to Mexico with courage and joy. What was Miguel Pro coming back to? Wholesale massacre was the order of the day. The aim of the terrorist was the weak, priests, old people, young boys, girls, and women. The clergy, 
the young people, the old men and women, decided it was time to fight back. And so they did. The bishop closed all the churches in Mexico. There was an uproar from the people against the government. An underground youth group was formed, which became the force behind the people of the country. A boycott was begun in protest against the persecution of the church. People just stopped buying. Banks failed and closed down. Underground printing presses churned out anti-government propaganda. Balloons were sent into the air. Thousands of pamphlets filled with propaganda material attacking the government cascaded to earth. President Calles countered with his iron fist. That was all he knew. He had not an iota of an idea how to put his country back together. So like his predecessors, he ruled with force and piled up as much money as he could in anticipation of the day he will be forced to flee the country. This vast city was to be Padre Miguel Pro's parish. These catacomb Christians were to be his parishioners. Miguel ministered to his hundreds of thousands of parishioners in secret, in constant hiding, running from the police. He began his ministry the day after he arrived in the capital. First, he found his father and brothers and sisters. Then he went to work. Every trick he'd ever learned, every disguise was put into use. He organized communion stations all over the city. They were houses where the faithful would come to receive the Lord. He never distributed less than 300 communions. On first Fridays, the figure swelled to 1,200 and all under the noses of the police. Masses were celebrated all over the city before dawn. There were private homes, different ones all the time, with watchdogs looking out for police, passwords being changed constantly. The rich and the poor gathered together in these small rooms to adore their Lord and receive the nourishment they could only get at the hands of their priests. Those who wanted to confess had to arrive at the appointed places earlier than the Mass, sometimes at 5.30 in the morning. It was truly a catacomb church. A crack underground organization had been put into effect. The police tried to smash it. They found out who a given set of leaders might be, arrested them, tortured them, and killed them. They were no sooner arrested than they were replaced by those under them. The movement never slowed down for a minute. Caius bore down harder, hoping this might stop the nightmare which he had caused. Every now and then, the police found the printing presses and smashed them to pieces. New printing operations will start up almost immediately, so smoothly, so secretly, none of the spies that Caius had employed could keep up with them. The Mexican Catholics, who had been apathetic about their church, now stood up for it. The bishops and priests could see them joining as one, becoming stronger and stronger against this attack by the government. One bishop was arrested for this statement said during his homily at Mass. Let Catholics repair their sins of omission, affirm their civic rights. Let them courageously resist the destroyers of the laws of humanity. Let all, old and especially the young, sacrifice pleasure and fight the fight of God, never retreating until all confiscated liberties are reconquered. The people rose to action. It was this excitement, this drive to stand up for their beliefs under pain of death that brought about the balloon incident we mentioned before. On December 4, 1926, 600 balloons, about three yards in diameter, were sent floating over the city at about noon. Each balloon carried the symbol of the youth organization and the word boycott on it, both of which made President Caius blood boil. This was followed by thousands of multicolored pamphlets falling from the buildings with strong anti-government comments. The people ran all over trying to catch the pamphlets. The police in turn ran all over trying to catch the people. Wholesale arrests took place. Although Padre Pro was not known by the police, his brother Umberto was. And so one evening, the police arrested Umberto, Miguel, his other brother Roberto, and a host of young men. 
Finally, Miguel and his brothers were released from prison, but it was too close for comfort. His superiors caught wind of what had happened and suggested he lay low for a while. He bravely shrugged off their suggestion until 25 days later, the police burst into his apartment again and wanted to arrest everyone. He begged, pleaded, and finally bribed the officer in charge. But he knew he and all his relatives had to leave the apartment and not come back. When his superiors heard about this, they changed their suggestion to an order to stay out of sight for a while. Miguel managed to keep himself under cover for two months. He wrote a heart-rending plea to his provincial, which could not possibly have been turned down. Folks have such need of spiritual help. Every day, I hear people have died without the sacraments. There are no more priests to defy danger. From obedience or fear, they stay home. If I gave my little contribution of a grain of sand, as before, it will be to expose myself. But to do it with discretion and measure does not seem to be rash. Between rashness and fear, there is a middle course. And between excess of prudence and audaciousness, there is a middle course. They, his provincials, fear for my life. My life? But what is that? Would it not be saving it to lose it for my brethren? Certainly one must not expose oneself idiotically. But the sons of Loyola, he got them with that one. He put himself right back in the middle of the battlefield. He went into prisons disguised, for they are brimful of Catholics, and laughed at how he got away with it. He walked around with a cane as a cripple with a police dog, and went on his appointed task on a bicycle. His mastery of facial contortions made him the man of many faces. On Good Friday of 1927, Miguel was giving a retreat to a large group of people in the capital. A young man, Manuel Bonilla, aged 23, had been arrested for being a member of the youth group. Because he was a typographer, they judged him guilty of working with the underground printing press. On this Good Friday, to put across a point, they took him and hung him from a tree, arms and legs attached, in the form of a cross. This was done right near Mexico City. They kept him like that from noon to three o'clock, at which time he was taken down from the cross and shot to death. He, like our Lord Jesus, had been sold out for money by a farmer with whom he had had dinner. The parallels are incredible. Padre Pro wrote many letters chronicling his activities in his country during this terrible time. But he wrote as he lived, joyful, cheerful, always the joker. Very often, we don't really get a true picture of the outrages that took place. We want to share just a few actual experiences. Please load our free Bob and Penny Lord app. Here is how to download our free Bob and Penny Lord app. Simply with your iPhone or Android device, go to the App Store, search for Bob and Penny Lord app, and download it. It's that simple. Here's what you can do with our free Bob and Penny Lord app. Number one, the, there's a link to our marketplaces, our websites, uh, our uh, blog, and this podcast. The second link is to our Bob and Penny Lord TV channel where you can access all of our videos as seen on EWTN, plus a whole lot more. Thank you very much.